Jesus is the transfigured king. That's, that's the theme today. And what, what, what could that mean? This morning, we just heard one of the most fascinating and also maybe complicated or confusing passages in the story, in the narrative of the life of Jesus. It's weird. It's, it's very weird. And I think it's okay to say that. You know, when you read the story of Jesus, I mean, he does a lot of weird things, but you can kind of get a handle on what he was doing. He's maybe healing someone, or he's preaching, teaching, uh, he's rebuking someone. Like, these things make, generally, they can make sense to us. Whatever issues we have with it, it makes sense. But then this moment occurs where Jesus goes up with his friends to a mountain, and then all of a sudden he gets really glowy, and then two ancient prophets show up next to him. A booming voice. Peter starts saying something. Who knows what he means? And then in a flash, it's all over, and his friend, Jesus and his friends are just standing on the top of the mountain, and they head down. And that's the setup. What's going on? Well, I think it's fitting that on the last Sunday of our uh, Royalty Revealed series, we'll be exploring the kingship of Jesus, that it should end with the transfiguration, because this is kind of the linchpin Right? Whatever else we've said about Jesus, that he's the king among us, that he's close, he's not distant, he's very interested in our lives, he loves us, he's not uh, heavy-handed and a kind of an emperor holding us down, he's actually trying to give us freedom and love. All the things we've said about Jesus, this is the one. But if this one doesn't land, everything else we've said it kind of falls apart like a, like a house of cards. Because what we're being shown here, and what we need to know about Jesus and his kingship is that of all the things, Jesus' kingship is a divine kingship. Because Jesus is divine. That's what we're being shown, that Jesus is God. And we're, we need to see that. We need to, um, to follow Jesus is to accept that proposition, to accept that fact. We may wrestle with it, we may interrogate it, we may explore it, but in the end, to properly apprehend Jesus, and more importantly than understanding, to have a relationship with Jesus, that has to be the condition. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. Come to us. Take it or leave it. That's what's being shown here. And I say we need to see it because over and over again in the story of Jesus... Jesus often, if you're reading the story, he's often disappearing. And the disciples have to like look for him in the weeds or in the mountain because he goes out and he's always praying by himself. He's a man of prayer. But in this instance, instead of going up to a mountain by himself again to be found, he says, no, I'm taking my three closest friends. Come, hand by hand, we're going up the mountain. I need to show you something. And when they go up the mountain, there are his three closest friends. And suddenly it says, Jesus' clothes become white. He's clothed in light. That is meant for us to be a, a clue and a sign. Because when uh, the original community would have seen that moment, that description of what's happening, they would have connected something that I think we maybe often don't. But there's a, a very beautiful and specific psalm. Psalm 104, verse 2. And it's, and it's talking about God. It says, God is the one who clothes himself in light. 
God is light. He's, God exists in unapproachable light. And there is Jesus on the mountain with his friends, and he's saying, I'm going to show you something. I need you to understand something about me. And he robes himself in light. And he's saying, you see the Bible we read, the Psalms, yeah, make the connection. What am I showing you? Who am I? I'm more than you think I am. And he's showing them this because prior to the reading we read today, if you just go a chapter before, Jesus had asked his followers a specific question. Who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? And they have a little conversation. And after Jesus hears what they said, that's when he takes their hand. All right, let's go up the mountain. Now I'm going to show you who I am. I am the God who robes himself in light. And as he's there in his glory, his brilliant glory, Moses and Elijah show up. Which if you know uh, about the Judeo-Christian tradition, Islamic tradition, Judaism, Christianity, these are important figures. At this point in world history, these ancient prophets, Elijah was a prophet of God, preaching to the people of God at a time of great blasphemy where the whole people of God had wholesale turned their backs on the true God and uh, idol-worshipping and child-sacrificing and doing just horrendous things. And Elijah, seemingly by himself, with great power, God worked through Elijah and with signs and wonders called the people back to worship the living God. Elijah is a big deal. He shows up right next to Jesus. And if that's not enough, arguably one of the greatest prophets, if not the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, right next to Jesus, Moses, shows up. People go, you know who it is, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, hey, let my people go. And God, with great power, uses Moses. There's miracles out of frogs and gnats. And it's insane. God uses Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And it's called, typically called the Exodus. There's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to that narrative. And it's well known enough that I, I say Exodus. You can, oh, I, I, I think, yeah, I know what that's about, right? Rescuing, redemption from slavery. These two incredible titanic figures in world history appear next to Jesus, and Jesus stands in the midst, robed in light, showing his followers. You see these two incredible individuals? They don't hold a candle to me. I am in a league of my own. Yeah, they're great dudes, but they're nothing compared to me. Because I am robed in light. The divine glory emanates through me because I'm divine. I was having a conversation with a, with a good friend recently. We were talking about this because in this season of life of year, as if you may know, uh, uh, Anglican churches, many churches are in a three-year cycle of reading the Bible. We call them a, a year A, B, C. And so depending on what year you want, those are the readings you get, including what gospel you read. And so this year, we're in year B, so reading the Gospel of Mark. You've noticed that mostly we're reading from Mark. And my friend was telling me, he's saying, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying about Jesus being God, but that's really more of like a Gospel of John thing. He kind of talks about that, and it's a later Gospel, and the synoptics, which are like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think maybe, I'm not sure, but Mark definitely doesn't. And Mark's the oldest Gospel, so it does seem like maybe Jesus being God is more like a tacked on tradition that came later, and not really what the OG Jesus was talking about. And, I mean, he bought me a delicious lunch, so I just kind of let that slide up. I mean, we talked about it, but I've been thinking about that, because it's like, all right, we're all thinking about this. 
I won't say everything I said to him, because that was like a two-hour conversation. We don't have that time this morning. But I want to point out something, because we've been on this journey. And this is not ad hoc. When we open the Gospel of Mark, the first, the first chapter, we, from the beginning, what's the first thing in Mark? It says, it's the story of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, and then it quotes Isaiah 40. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Right? Ancient prophecy. And if you just flip your pages and go to Isaiah 40 and you read it, it's clear since it uses the word that that passage is talking about God. Prepare the way for our God. Yahweh. It's not an accident. Even Mark, the oldest and Maybe sometimes he whispers what John the gospel proclaims, is saying, saying, remember that passage where Isaiah is saying, prepare the way for the living God? Yeah, well now in this gospel, that's being fulfilled. John the Baptist is preparing the way for our God, Jesus. But it's understandably easy to miss. Reading the story, even disciples are probably missing. They're walking around with Jesus, they're not getting it, and that's why Jesus says to him, okay, so just so we can make this clear, Glow time, his glory. Moses and Elijah standing next to him. Jesus saying, I am going to leave it my home. And if you read the Gospel of Luke on this passage of Transfiguration, it says that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. We heard it this morning, but it says they were talking to him about his departure and the fulfillment that would occur in Jerusalem. His departure. Now the word departure used there, the original language, isn't departure. It's exodus. So you can imagine what they're talking about. Elijah could have been talking to Jesus when they're having a conversation, blowing. Elijah saying, yeah, I called the people of God to turn back, to repent and turn back to, to God. But now I see that what I was doing was an icon and a representation of what you're doing to the whole world. Wow, you're the guy. I was a local prophet, but you're now we get it. Elijah, his whole his old ministry coming into perspective on that moment, talking to Jesus. And Moses talking to him, saying, Yeah, no, you're right. You, you definitely used me to rescue the people from slavery, that historical moment. And thank you. That was that was real and that happened, and you used me to rescue the people of God from slavery in Egypt. But now I understand that that was an icon and a symbol of what you are going to be doing. Your exodus, because you're going to rescue all of us from the true slavery, the tyranny of sin. You're the God. I do believe they understood who Jesus is. And then there's poor Peter. Right? It says to me, this is a terrifying moment. I know we're, we're, every year we're talking, at least twice a year, so we're kind of used to it. You have to imagine, your, your best friend, who's an amazing teacher, suddenly started blowing on a mountain. I think we'd all be a little freaked out. They're terrified. And that's normal, by the way. That's very normal. You know, there's just a, in the Old Testament, there's a, uh, Ezekiel, a prophet, has a vision of God. And it's, a be- it's like terrifying. It's also beautiful. And part of it, he describes seeing the throne of God, and he sees six-winged seraphim hovering, flying around the throne of God, and it's like a, a dark cloud tempest, but there's also kind of light from a rainbow. It's intense, and there's a throne. Uh, when the throne's culminating, it's kind of made of sapphire. And on top of that, 
throne of sapphire, there's a, like an appearance kind of like a man, which I do believe is actually a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. There's kind of an appearance of a man, and his skin is like metal, molten hot white metal. That's an, it's an incredible vision to read it. It's astounding. It says that when Ezekiel saw this vision of the living God, he falls down. He's terrified. The inbreaking of the divine into our world, it's, it's, it would be astounding. None of us would stand there and be like, oh, that's interesting. No, we, we collapse. So it's understandable. I don't want to make fun of the disciples too much because it's understandable that they'd be terrified when the living God shows up on the mountain. And I guess there's at least two ways of responding to a moment like that. James and John are kind of quiet. They don't say anything. They're just taking in, just terrified. And there are other people that I guess in those holy moments start saying nothing. Poor Peter just starts rambling. Let's make a, hey, Jesus, let's make a hut. Let's, uh, for you and your friends, let's just stay here. And if, if that wasn't enough, a booming voice comes down like, shh, Peter, quiet. This is my son. You've got to listen to him. They see you have ideas. Even in the face of the divine, you start having a little machinery of how things should go. I need you to stop and attend to my son. He's my son. He's divine. He's a divine king. Listen to him. I shouldn't be too hard on Peter, but honestly, that's most that's us most, most of the time. The living God comes into our lives in many different ways. In the songs that we sing, in the times we pray and read scripture, maybe you want to hike, climb a mountain. I don't know. God comes to you. God comes to me. I'll speak for myself at this point. And often, more than attending and listening to what God wants to say, I fill it with words and stuff and try to categorize it and partial my, my, my spiritual experiences into a little slot. I wake up, I have my breakfast, a little God time, then I have brunch. And we slot God as if God, as if Jesus Christ isn't divine, isn't the one who our whole life should be aimed at his reality. We try to grab Jesus and slot him into our lives as is he a second version of brunch. You see what God is saying? Stop, stop chattering with your life, Peter. Listen. Disciples blink. The light is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. And Jesus is standing there. And it says that they, they all go down. And that's significant. As we're going to see in the story, he's going down this mountain because Jesus now has to climb another mountain. Mount Golgotha. And notice that Elijah and Moses aren't there. Because Jesus is going to climb the last mountain, the mountain of the cross, and only he's doing it. Right? Yeah, Elijah and Moses are incredible figures. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean to them. But what Jesus is going to accomplish, the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish, only Jesus can do it. They're talking about his departure, his exodus. Jesus is going to rescue us from the slavery of sin. Only Jesus can do it. That's why everything disappears. Now this is Jesus' moment. He's walking down with his friends, but only he 
He's going to walk up the last mountain. And he's going to choose to give up his life on the cross to rescue us from the slavery of our sin. That was the whole reason why he came to this world. That's why God had to come to rescue us from our brokenness, from our loneliness, from our alienation, from each other, and especially from God. Only Jesus could do that. You have to hear this. If, if God could have spoken Ten Commandments 2.0 and just given that to humanity and we would get it right, he would have done that. But that never worked. Jesus, God sent prophet after prophet after sage after prophet and all we managed to do each time, ignore them and then kill them. Because we could never live up to God's standards. We killed them because it's horrible to hear what God actually desires and requires from us. It's a horrible thing to, to hear. You want to hear it? Here it is. Please don't kill me. I require holiness, says God. I require perfection, for I am holy and perfect. And I can countenance no evil, no sin. So be ye perfect as I am perfect. Be ye holy as I am holy. And to hear that, you cringe. Because none of us can do that. So what is God to do? Unsheathe a sword of fire and flame and just cast it on the earth? That would be understandable. And if that sounds wild for me to say out loud and you're hearing that, I just want you to look in the news and the atrocities that we visit on each other, even today, and then just read human history. Is it not red in the blood of our sisters and brothers? Oh, my friend, only if you haven't suffered and lost and experienced injustice, only if you've had the comfort of a modern Western life with no real hurt does the notion of God's vengeance seem weird to you. But if you have been hurt and no justice has been done to what you've lost, then the notion of God coming down with a sword makes a lot of sense. So by rights, God could have done that. And yet he doesn't. When God shows up, he shows up in humility and love, in a manger, grows to a man, again, humble. He's not impressive. He's not handsome. The Bible says that he's, eh, he wasn't that beautiful to look at. He's a regular, probably five-foot ground dude in Palestine. God. And when he preached, he said the same thing the prophets did, in fact, more. He says, Moses told you that if you sleep with a woman who's not your wife, you're committing adultery, but I say to you, that if you just look at a woman with desire, you've committed adultery. It's equal to you. Jesus came, showed how much perfection God requires, and when we all heard him, we know we've got to kill this guy. This is way too much. And Jesus said, yeah, I give my life for this. Because in your ignorance of trying to stifle my message of love as you try to kill me, my death, and I'm going to judo this, my death will serve as a vehicle of life for you. Because I'm God and I can do that. God is the only person that can turn death into a servant and slave. And death now for the person who trusts in Jesus is not the final end. Death is just a door to a new and better life with God. Because Jesus, God made man, came to us to give his life. My friends, that's what you're meant to see. 
That's what we're seeing on the mountain. But it's not forcing you to believe that. You have to choose. Now, you might say, well, Seth, I still, yeah, the Jesus God thing, I don't know. But I can follow his teachings, right? In fact, if I just think of him as a great teacher and sage, I don't say the God thing, but I say almost everything else, it's the same thing, right? Not if God wants a relationship with you. What's exactly what God wants. I'm going to be a little cheeky right now, but I want you to hear this. I go to a party with my wife. Don't know anyone there, so you're saying introductions. And she says, oh, this is my husband, Seth. And I say, yeah, this is my girlfriend, Britt. What do you think is going to happen there? It's going to stop. She's going to look at me like, what? No, no, you're the greatest of girlfriends. No. What? Right? It'd be a standstill. The relationship would be off. She's saying I'm her husband. I'm saying you're top girlfriend. No girlfriend like you, but you're my girlfriend. And if that goes on long enough, you can talk to her later. She'll say, this is over. This relationship is a non-starter. It's not going anywhere. We're not on the same wavelength. Right? That's why, no, I'm your husband. She's my wife. It's understood. And on that connect, that clear basis, do we have a relationship? Now, in a way more important relationship, God comes to humanity and Jesus and says, I'm Jesus and I'm God. And you look to him in his face and like, ah, you're more like a prophet. In an honest relationship, you have to see each other for who you are. It's not a democracy. We don't sit at the table with Jesus and like, hey, you're Jesus, great teacher. Hey, I'm a priest. Let's talk about what you're saying. No. You sit at the table with Jesus. He says, hey, I'm God and King. And you're a sinner who needs my salvation. That's the relationship. It's asymmetric. You need my help, and I'm wanting to give it to you, but you have to accept me on my terms. That's how this works. Britt would tell me, we can have a relationship, but I'm your wife. If you don't say wife, it can't go anywhere. Way more importantly, God says to us, this is Jesus, my son. Jesus is like, hey, and I'm God. God, accept me as this. If you don't accept me as this, nothing's getting off. The Bible is clear. At the end of time, we all show up in front of Jesus, and some people will say, Kyrie, Kyrie. Lord, Lord. Right? Old Testament. Adonai Yahweh. In other words, they're going to see Jesus. Like, oh, okay. Hey, God. Yeah, you're God. And Jesus is going to look to them and be like, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. Because it's a call to relationship. God wants to know you, and he does. He wants you to know him. But to know him is to know Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, come to us. And if you accept and receive him on those terms, then by definition, his love, his life, his grace will be indwelt in your life. You'll experience the transformation that God kind of uh, shows us there in the mountain, that whiteness, that beauty, that transcendence, that experience of wholeness, spiritual, psychological integrity, integration, all given to you in Jesus because you'd have a relationship with him on the correct terms. But it's my wife. I call my wife. She is my wife. I believe that. I know that. And I get to enjoy a wonderful marriage with her, with God, way better. Jesus is God. And then you have a relationship. No relationship can exist on a lie, especially the one with God. So my friends, as we wrap up 
not only to this sermon, but this series that we've been on, this journey. I want to encourage you to think of this, and everything we've said in the past few weeks hinges on this. God is not distant. God is near. God is not indifferent. God loves you and is so close to you and wants you to be with him. He's he's so desperate for that. While we were God's enemies, Jesus gave his life for us. St. Paul is right. If you just call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. By saved, your eternal destiny will be secure, and today a new life can be born if you trust in Jesus, the King, God, the Amen. That's the door. You walk through that. A new life awaits. I invite you in the name of Jesus to accept him as Jesus, God, and King, as he loves you. He loves us all forever. Let's hold that as we pray together. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, I want to give you thanks and praise because um, as often as we wrestle with you and we think about you and we ask questions and you know I get things wrong, we get things wrong. God, you're always there. And you're not distant, you're not aloof, you're so close, offering us your life and your love. God, I pray for each person in this room right now. You know our journeys, I don't, you do. God, whatever is in our life right now that is preventing us from trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, God and King, whatever's stopping us from that, I, I pray that you would kill it, that you would remove it. Help us to receive your Son as he is. Our Lord and God, help us. In that we pray. In his name. Amen.